Glad to see everyone out this morning, everyone that's in the audience and everyone that's joining us with, on Zoom. Very glad that you're here. I appreciate the prayer on my behalf. It's my prayer also this morning and has been since I started, I was asked to speak that the things that I have to say will, will be edifying to you, that you can hopefully feel that, that you've been lifted up by the words that we speak here today. I know that I always enjoy the opportunity to speak. I always enjoy uh, the opportunity to put lessons together, and I hope uh, that it's something that you can relate to this morning. The lesson that I've chosen to spoke on this, speak on this morning is called Lessons from the Wild Man. We're going to take our text this morning from Daniel chapter 4. Uh, everybody that has known me and the way that I speak, I love the Old Testament. I think it's a very uh, interesting book. There's so many stories that come out of that to me that, that speak to me, so many stories that we read that, that we can see the plan for the church, the future church to come. We can see the plan for God's love for us. And we can just always, in those things that we see and that we read, I always feel that we can be lifted up by that. And this morning... Uh, we're going to talk about Nebuchadnezzar. He was the wild man. If you're familiar with Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar was a ruler of the Babylonian Empire. And according to history and everything else, Babylon was the grandest empire that ever ruled on the face of the earth at that time. They had taken over the known world at that time. And, and Nebuchadnezzar in history, is, a, is uh, he is the one that supposedly built the hanging gardens of Babylon for his favorite wife, and, and he was a builder king. He was a very prosperous king. He was the longest ruler of the Babylonian Empire, something like 40 years that he ruled Babylon. And it was a wonderful and, by all accounts, awesome place. It held one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the hanging gardens of Babylon. It was a beautiful place. He was a builder king. And the thing about Nebuchadnezzar that's really interesting to me is Unlike some rulers that we read of in the Bible, and, and he had a somewhat of a relationship with God. Now, that's a very loose term that I use in a relationship with God. I'm not, I'm not making any uh, thoughts on his salvation or, or anything like that. But what I am talking about, he was a king that was humbled many times, but he also realized the power of the living God. And, I, and you can recall your stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were in the fire and they pulled out. He saw a vision with them, and he said God chose to show to him the form of the fourth that he saw was like the Son of God. Now, if you don't have some sort of relationship with God, I don't know how you got that or how he could see that, but he chose to reveal that to him. And just like he, he did, he is going to do here in chapter 4 when we talk about that. Now, was he a godly man? I'm not going to go that far. But he did understand the power of God. And I think that's what make ne makes Nebuchadnezzar to me very interesting. And the fact that he was so prosperous and he ruled in such a, a, a prosperous uh, world empire. So as we start out, I'm not going to read Daniel, because, uh, Daniel chapter 4 because it's about 37, 38 verses. I'm going to just try to hit the high points and, and uh, carry on from there. But basically it's told in a narrative from King Nebuchadnezzar. It's, Daniel is obviously the writer of the book and he's reiterating what Nebuchadnezzar had to say. But Nebuchadnezzar's making a proclamation to all of his people uh, in this chapter. And he says that he, the king, had a dream. 
And he began to talk about this dream, and when he had this dream, it was very troubling to him, and he was, he was upset by it. And this, obviously, if you're familiar with Daniel, this isn't the first time that Nebuchadnezzar's had a dream that's bothered him. And so he calls all of his people together, and as humans are wont to do, we always look to the human side first. And he calls his human astrologers or his worldly astrologers in, and he begins to ask them and tell them the dream that he had had and, what, what the, and ask what the interpretation was. And obviously, we know the answer to that, that they could not. They didn't understand the dream. They weren't any better off than Nebuchadnezzar was. And then along came a guy named Daniel or as he refers to him through most of the chapter, Bel- Belshazzar, or Belteshazzar, uh, which his, was his Babylonian name when he was taken captive uh, from Jerusalem there. And, his, and he refers to him, and he refers to him, it's funny to me, he refers to him several times as having the spirit of the mighty gods, plural. And if you go back in other chapters, he realizes that, that Daniel serves Jehovah, the one God, the true and living God, but he in his worldly mindset or in his polytheistic mind, he always wants to assign that to Daniel as a, uh, having the, the power of the most holy gods, plural. But uh, nonetheless, he calls Daniel in and he begins to tell him the dream. And, da- and Nebuchadnezzar has this dream about this huge tree. And it's very tall and it says the branches stretched into the horizon and the, and the, the, trunks and, uh, the trunk of the tree and the top was very high in the sky. And it was huge and it was massive. And all the birds of the kingdom and the animals, they came and they lived under it and they ate the fruit of it and they had shelter under it and it covered the entire area. But as this dream goes on and he sees these things, the glories and the wonders of this tree and the things that are living in it and the animals and the shelter and the food that it gives, he says the dream takes a dark turn and a watcher comes down from heaven. And it cries against the tree, and it says, Cut the tree down, get the animals from out from under it, and disperse the fruit of it, and chop it down. And he says, I want you to chop it down, the watcher says, but he says, the stump will be preserved. And he tells him to put two bands of brass and iron upon that stump. But the tree is to be destroyed. And then the dream takes a little bit of a darker turn, too. He says, and let a beast's heart be given unto it. And let him be driven from men. And he changes into more of a humanistic view of that tree. And he says to drive it from men and it will be out and uh, left in the dew of heaven. And let a beast's heart be given to it. Now imagine if you will if you're the king and you just had that dream. It's going to be troubling. Have you ever woken up in the morning and had a dream and you can't shake it? It stays with you all day, and you just don't feel good about it. That's where Nebuchadnezzar was at this point. And his astrologers and everybody else couldn't get to the bottom of it, but in comes Daniel. And we know that Daniel had the ability, the God-given ability, to interpret dreams. And he interprets his dream. And the king asked Daniel, he says, what's it mean? And Daniel's visibly worried. See, Daniel has a good relationship with Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's number two in the kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar is the only one higher. And he says, the problem is, king, he says, the interpretation of this dream is against you. And the people that hate you are going to be happy and your enemies are going to be glad. But Nebuchadnezzar says, don't fail to tell me the dream. Tell me all. He had an open heart. He wanted to hear it. He wanted to know. He wanted to get to the bottom of this dream. Well, Daniel begins to lay out the dream. He said, that tree, that glorious and, and wonderful tree is you. 
You rule over the greatest empire in the world. It's a, it's a wonderful empire. It's a good empire. Everybody flourishes under your empire. But the problem is, you're going to be lifted up with pride. And you're going to have problems. And you're going to turn away from your thoughts of God. And you're going to be lifted up with your own pride. And that watcher's going to come down and he's going to drive you from men. He says, you're going to go insane. You're going to lose your mind. And you're going to be driven from your kingdom and you're going to be out in the field and you're literally going to eat grass like a cow. And your hair's going to grow long. And you're going to have claws. I mean, this is a, this is a, a, a scary thing, I'm sure. For Nebuchadnezzar, but he turned, he tells him that. He says, but in the end, he tells him, he says, all these things will come to pass, but he said, take this and learn, Nebuchadnezzar. Break off thy sins from before God. He says, don't let this happen. But he says, the bright side is, if this does happen, your kingdom will be preserved to you. That was the iron on the stump of the tree. He said, you will have your kingdom, but you will have to learn a hard lesson if you don't learn it now. So obviously, all of us, if you think about it, if we had that dream, where would we be at in life? We'd be, yes, sir, I'm going to straighten up and I'm going to fly right, right? We've all been there. We've had close calls. We've gotten in trouble. Well, whatever it is, you remember back and you go, you know, from here on, I'm a straight air. I'm not doing anything wrong. And that worked for Nebuchadnezzar for about a year. And then one day, Nebuchadnezzar was walking around in his palace, and he said, and he looked out the window, and he looked around, and he said, look at the glory of Babylon that I have built. Look at the wonderful things that I have done. Look at the wonderful kingdom that I have owned. And the Bible said the words were not out of his mouth before the words of the Lord came and said, this is going to be done to you. You're going to be driven from men. You've just lost your kingdom. You're going to eat grass like a cow and you're going to be driven out and you're going to be wet with the dew of heaven. And immediately Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind. His counselors and his, and his uh, officers drove him out and he literally lived for seven years. Seven years as a wild man in the forests and away from town. He had a beast's heart, a beast's mind. He lost his mind. The Bible said his hair literally grew long, like eagle's feathers. He was covered in hair. His nails grew long, and he was wild because he forgot that God was on his throne, that God was the true ruler in every situation. And for seven years, he lived in the grips of his insanity and a separation from his kingdom for seven years. But the... The good thing is, and we'll we'll pick it up, if you'll turn to Daniel chapter 4, I want to pick it up in verse 34 because I like the words that I don't think I can do justice to. I'd rather read them. Starting in verse 34, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking here, and he says, At the end of the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored him, that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and, and he doeth according to his will in the armies of heaven and, the, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? 
In the same time, my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and my brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the kingdom of heaven, all whose works are truth, and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. You know, Nebuchadnezzar in seven years learned a very valuable lesson, didn't he? He learned that God sits on his throne, even in the mighty kingdom of Babylon. His mind returned to him when he humbled himself, didn't it? And his kingdom was restored, just like God, or just like the watcher in the dream had told him it would be, and Daniel told him it would be. There was truth in what God had to say. There was a plan in what God had for him, wasn't it? I don't know exactly at what point this came in to be, but between chapter 4 and chapter 5, there's 30, or 40 years, excuse me, 30 years that pass. So this is about the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign before uh, Belshazzar takes over uh, the kingdom. There's not a lot other than the Bible's account of Nebuchadnezzar. But I will say to you, if you read the mythologies of Babylon, there is a story called the Epic of Gilgamesh. And this story is repeated in some shape of that, where the king, Gilgamesh, runs into a wild man out in the forest. And if you look and do a lot of study on Nebuchadnezzar, they'll say that he never existed. Suppose, or that some of these stories, excuse me, he existed, but the stories didn't happen. But we know that the Bible is true. And we know that these stories are written to bring us to Christ. A schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, as the, as the word tells us. And I want us to keep Nebuchadnezzar in mind as we kind of transition over to the other part of our lesson. Let's just think about what happened in this story. And I want us to put ourselves in that position. And I want us to see what we can learn from the wild man or from Nebuchadnezzar. First of all, I want us to look at that it walking with God brings peace and prosperity. Now, before you start thinking I'm preaching a prosperity doctrine, I'm going to clarify that. Prosperity in our lives, not monetarily necessarily, but prosperity in like our relationships and our friendships and things like that. But God's, a walk with God brings peace and prosperity in our lives. John chapter 1, verses four, 14, verse 6 says, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. No one cometh unto the Father but by me. That's Jesus in his own words there. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by me. We use that a lot. And I've looked at that verse a lot, and I always tend to look at it just like that. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and then we move on. But I would like to look at that verse when it comes to walking with God and our walk with God and about a peace and prosperity. I want to break that down into four parts. First of all, I am the way. Jesus plainly says, I am the way. If we want salvation, it will be Jesus' way. If we want peace, it will be Jesus' way. If we want prosperity in our lives, it will be Jesus' way. My counterpoint to that would be that shows us in Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 23. Tell us what the Bible says about man and his ways. Jeremiah chapter 10 Verse 23, it says, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his own steps. You know, how true is that verse? 
Just like Jesus is the way, and we know that if we follow Jesus' way, things work out. And I'll put to you, you look at all of our things, that we, all of us sitting here, look at where Jesus reigns in our lives, where we follow Jesus' way, what is it like? It works, doesn't it? You don't want to know how to treat your wife, as you talked about last Sunday. Follow Jesus' way. What does that cause? That causes harmony in the home, doesn't it? When we have a problem with a fellow man and we come to him with a humble heart as Jesus did and we talk to them with love and compassion, what happens? We may or may not solve the problem, but guess what? We have a better relationship, don't we? I've had those things where I was upset with, uh, with people and I talked to them in a calm and, and uh, uh, loving manner as best as we can and things tend to work out, don't they? We've all been there. Jesus' way works. He says, I am the way. But guess what? What happens when we take Jesus out of our life? I don't have to look very far to where I see that I've pulled Jesus out of my life and things fall apart real fast. It's not within my way to direct my own path. We have to follow Jesus. We have to let him direct our path because we're not able to. And I think we don't have to look very far than the world around us. We've taken God out of everything we can possibly get our hands on, and look what's happening. Without God, there is no way. Without Jesus, there is no way. There's just man's way. You know, without absolute moral authority, what's left? If we don't have God's word, the absolute moral authority, and we take that away, what is left? My opinion. Well, if my opinion's just as good, why is that any different than anybody else's? So my opinion is one way, your opinion is another way, and there's nothing in there that keeps those in check, and pretty soon, those, it's just a mess. I am the way, Jesus said. You want to know how to do things right? You want to know how to walk the right way? Follow God. Follow Jesus. He told us to love our fellow man, to be humble to be kind, to be loving. We need to follow his way. Second of all, Jesus said, I am the truth. Not only is he the way, but he is the truth. You know, humankind is not very reliable when it comes to truth. And I, even when we're trying, at best we're subjective. Whenever there's an accident, it's, very, it's a very common uh, idea that even if there are four or five people that witness that accident, their testimony is not reliable. Very seldom will anything, anybody be convicted on eyewitness testimony alone. Why? Not because we're trying to lie, not because we have malicious intent in our heart, but the fact is we're human and we're flawed. So us and our absolute truth is really non-existent. Even when we see it and we're there, we're fallible. So our truth is always subjective, and especially when you get out in the world, this, the thought of moral relativism, it's okay for me to lie to you as long as I'm saving your feelings, or I don't want to mess with it, and it's okay, and what is truth? You know, that's what Pilate's whole deal was when he talked to Jesus. He said, what is truth? You know, that's kind of the way our world looks at truth, isn't it? Imagine, if you will, again, that there is no Bible and there is no absolute truth. How maddening would that have to be to live in that existence? But there are millions of people living in that existence today with no truth. But Jesus said, 
I am the truth. You know what? We know that because John 17, verse 17, Jesus in his own words when he's praying for his disciples right before he leaves this earth, he says, sanctify them by thy word. Thy word is truth. And he's talking about God's word. God's word is always true. If you're having trouble, like we talked about before, read God's word. You having trouble in relationships? Take Christ's example on how to treat people. Your relationships will get better. If he tells us that we have a home in heaven, you can bank on it. If he tells you that your sins are forgiven, you can take it to the bank. And you know what? You can't always do that with me. You can't always do that with you. Why? Because we're human. I can say all day, I forgive, I forget. But do I really? Jesus does. God does. Jesus and God and their word, the Bible, is absolute truth. And you can take it to the bank and it'll make your life better and it will make you a better person and it will make you a happier person and it will bring you peace and prosperity in your life. Jesus also said, I am the life. You know, the Bible plainly tells us that without God, we're dead. If I'm standing here right now, yes, I'm alive, but if I don't have Christ in my life, I am separated from the creator of this universe and the giver of life. I am separated from him, and I am dead. And what I have right here is the only thing that I'm ever going to get. There's no reward without God. We've got to follow the life of Christ. Without him, we're dead. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. says, if you, are, if you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not the things on the earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is in our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Set our affection on things above. Christ is alive. You know, the Bible tells us to receive with meekness the engrafted word of truth. I don't know if, you, if any of you, I, I remember this from high school. One of the few things that I do remember, I took horticulture. When you make a graft in, in a plant, you take that and you cut a branch and then you split it down the middle and then you put the new graft inside that and then you take grafting tape and you wrap, you wrap that around that and that graft will take. So you can take a red rose bush and cut it off and put in a, a white rose in there and do that, and you've got red roses here, and this branch is going to be a white rose. You know, that's what the Bible's telling us to do. He says, take Christ into our life. Split our old mortal body, if you will, and put in Christ. And then wrap it up with his word and seal it off and water it with the truth of the gospel. Receive with meekness the engrafted word. Set our affections on things above. You know, there in Colossians, it talks about being in Christ and Christ being in us and God being with us. How wonderful a statement that is. And we've said it a lot of times from this pulpit, uh, me and others. How awesome is it that the Creator of this universe that I can bow my head and I can talk to him and I know that I'm heard.
How awesome is it that the creator of the universe sent his son to the cross for me? Because he said, I am the life. And he said, I'm willing to give my life for the sheep. That's me. Christ said, no man comes unto the Father by me, but by me. You know, there's lots of roads out there today that they're telling us it's all the same. Doesn't matter what, but what quote-unquote holy book you believe, just follow one of them, it's all the same. But Christ in his own words said, if you don't come by me, you're not getting there. And rightly so. Why in the world would Jesus not expect us to come through him to get to God when he gave his life for us? It's only normal. I mean, I'd be the same way if I gave my son or if I was dying for someone, I'd expect somebody at least to do it my way. That's what Jesus expects from us. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and nobody comes unto the Father but by me. Not any other name. And you know what? When we do that, we have peace and prosperity when we walk in God's way. When we put him first, when we engraft him into our life, things were good. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, as long as he remembered to stay humble when he was walking through his kingdom, he had the greatest kingdom at that time. He was happy. Things were great. But the problem came when he forgot God. As I get older, peace is worth so much more than when I was young. You know, I, I, I've said this before. I really don't care if I have a lot of money. I just, want, I just want peace. I want joy. That's what we can have through Christ. That's what we can have in this church with one another, the love that we have for each other. Second of all, that we can, things I want to look at is life with God requires self-reflection and humility. And what I mean by that is we have to decide where we're at, what point we're at, where we want to be, and where we're going. First of all, James chapter 1, verses 20 through 25. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forget what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being a, not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this man shall be blessed in his deeds. You know, first of all, when, we, when we're going to start our walk, with God and we're walking with him we need to realize that we're human you know and just like driving a car we drive down the road we don't set out down highway 70 put it and drive lower the steering wheel put the seat belt on and then turn over and start talking to people we don't do that we're constantly driving down that road and we're making sure that we're not crossing over into this lane and we're not crossing over into the ditch over here and that there's not oncoming traffic that we're fixing to run into it's a constant effort to drive down that road. Christianity's no different. We can't ex expect to set it on autopilot and just be a hearer of the word, as James says, and just let it go on down the road. We have to be checking ourselves constantly. He says, 
in, in James there, he says it's the perfect law of liberty. Look into it. You know, if we look into the Bible, it's going to show us where our glaring faults are. I don't have to read very far to go, whoop, there's one. And I suspect we're all the same way. That's why it calls it a mirror. It reflects us. And we can see the ugly spot. We can see the good spot. And that's important too. See the good things we're doing. See the problems. See the places where we're short, where we need to change things. But he says be a doer, not just a hearer. And so many times that's the category I find myself in. I just want to be a hearer and not a doer. You know, John F. Kennedy made a statement back, I guess, when he was, I wasn't alive, but in his presidency, he said, ask not what you can do for your country, but what your country can do for you. And we've kind of turned that around and asked what our country can do for us. What about if we turn that around in the church? Are we asking, what's the church going to do for me? What can the church do for me? Or am I asking, what can I do for the church? And yes, there are times that we need the church, but there's also times that the church needs us. We need to serve with humility and self-reflection. 2 Corinthians, if you will, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates. Very plainly, it says examine yourself. What do we do when we go and buy a, a, a used car? Do we just walk in and look at it over there five rows and go, yeah, I'm going to sign the paper, sign me up for the note. We walk over to that car and we crawl under it and we lift the hood and we look inside and we lift the floor mats and we look at the seats and we check it out. We examine it, don't we? That's what he's asking us to do in our lives. He says examine ourselves. Pull ourselves apart. Look into our own heart. Get to the deep, dark recesses of our heart and see, is it right? Are my thoughts right? Am I doing this right? Am I approaching this situation in the way that God wants? Am I following in Jesus' footsteps? And you know, that's a scary thing if we examine ourselves and find out that we're not in the faith, isn't it? You ever come to that realization to go, man, things better change real quick or I'm not going where I want to go. Examine ourselves. You know, that's, and we talk about that in, in our, com, our, our communion every, every Sunday morning at some point looking into our, our, our own lives, seeing where we need to change in the upcoming week, and, in, and then instituting those, change, those changes. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, this is Paul speaking here, says, but I keep under my body and bring it into, bring it into subjection, lest, it any, by, lest by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Do we have enough self-reflection and humility to make that statement? That I keep my body under subjection? You know, that's a hard thing to do. We as humans, we like our fun things. We like, we're very drawn to sin because in its very nature... In the beginning, sin is fun. 
But that's the deceitfulness of sin because it leads you just a little ways away and you come back, no, well, that wasn't so bad, but eventually the progression of sins will take us away. We must keep ourselves under subjection and as Paul said, lest we be a castaway, lest we be lost. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6. First Peter 5 and verse 6. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God and he, that he may exalt you in due time. You know what? We can do all the self-examination we want to all day long. We can see all the things that we need to do but until we put humility into our lives and into play in our lives, nothing will ever get done. We can see all the problems that Callan needs to do. He can see all the problems that he needs to fix, but if he cannot humble himself before God, humble himself in the eyes of his creator, those problems will never get fixed. So we can't have self-reflection without humility. We have to be humble. And you know, that is the hardest thing for mankind, to humble himself. Some of us, it's harder than others. But it's very hard for us to subject ourselves to God's rule a lot of times. But it's essential. We have to. And why shouldn't we want to? He gave his son for us. Why are we so obstinate? Why am I so obstinate? It's my human nature. But we have to humble ourselves if we're going to be pleasing. When we forget God, our lives fall apart. We all know that. We've all seen that, people, that, that, uh, that without God, it's, it's just a mess, as we talked about a little bit before. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12. Ephesians 2 verse 12. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now how scary is that to be alien from the covenant of promise? Alien from forgiveness of sins? Alien from prayer? Alien from being able to have peace and calm knowing that our sins are forgiven? But that's exactly what happens when we turn away from God. When we begin to spiral away, we lose those covenant promises. Because why? Because we become dead to God. Because we've chosen to walk away. And you know, that's what the craziest thing in the world, and that's what the Bible tells us. It says, fear not what man can do to your body, but fear him that can destroy both soul and body in hell. Do you realize the only people, and we've said it before, the, the only person that can, can uh, take away your salvation is you. You know, nobody can hold a gun to your head and take your salvation away from you. But we can throw it away for a night of pleasure or for a life of pleasure or for weeks of pleasure. However you want to do it, we can throw it away in a heartbeat. And how many times do we see that happening? Good example is the prodigal son. I'm not going to read that, but it's in Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. You know, 
if you look at that story, as long as the prodigal son was at home with his father and his brother and on the farm, if you want to call it, or at home, he was good. Everything was good. Life was great. He had all the food he wanted to eat. He had everything that he wanted. He had to live under his father's roof, but he was there. Everything was good. But he saw the green grass over there in the foreign country. And what happens as soon as he started that journey down that road, life began to crater for him, didn't it? Oh, it was great for a while. Like we said, sin looks really fun for a little bit. Oh, that's great. It's not hurting me that bad. And the next thing you know, you wake up and you're feeding the pigs in the pig pen and you're wanting to get down on your knees and eat with them. That's exactly where the prodigal son was. And don't be fooled. It'll do, us, do it to you and it'll do it to me in a heartbeat. We'll start at the top of the mountain. We'll end up in the valley with the pigs. And it'll happen like that, and we'll lose everything. Lose our families, lose our church, lose everything. And that's a hard road back. Not that there's not a road back, but it's a hard road back. And it's such an easy ride to get down there and such a long one to get back. You don't believe me? Ask the prodigal son. He was so ready. He said, I just want to be a servant. I don't even want to be a son. He said, I just want to be in the presence of kindness again. I want to be in the presence of my father again. He said, I don't even want to be a son. I just want to be there. Sin will deceive us, and it's not a pretty place. You don't have to go very far to see that. Romans 6, verse 16 says, well, I'm just going to read it. I'm not going to quote it. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. It says, Know ye not that whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are, and to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. You know what? We have no choice in this life. We're slaves. Plain and simple. But we got two choices. We can either serve the sin that we just talked about and we can live in the filth and we can live in the squalor with the heartbreak and the pain and the misery that Satan deals out if we're bound to him. Or we can serve the creator of the universe and we can serve a God that says, if you'll just follow me, I'll love you. You'll have peace. Things will go good. People will love you. You will love people and you will have this great, awesome life but we don't get a choice other than those two and the bible tells us where are you going to hook your wagon who are you going to hook your chains to are you going to hook it to the devil or are you going to chain yourself to jesus christ and god that love us and take care of us that was willing to die for us that should be a no-brainer for us as humanity this building if it <laughs> This building should be full to bursting in six or eight or ten. How many ever that everybody in Plainview would, would fit in? That's the way it should be. And that shows you how deceitful sin is. They'd rather be a slave to the world in misery than to joy and happiness. Nebuchadnezzar got his kingdom back when he realized what he'd done. He acknowledged God, said he was the ruler, and acknowledged that he ruled in the kingdom and the hearts of men. And for us, there's always a way back. As long as you're breathing, there is a way back. 
1 John 1 verse 9 says, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. If we will confess our sins, it says he is faithful and just to forgive us. You know, that goes back to truth. Do you believe that? You better, because he said he will. If we'll confess our sins, we're there. You know, that's exactly what the prodigal son did. He said, I'm not worthy, Father. I did these things. And what did the father say? He was standing on the porch. He didn't go get him in the far country, but as soon as he started the road back and he got, got coming into town, what happened? His father saw him a long way off, didn't he? And he ran and fell on his neck, and he put a robe on him, and he said, Welcome back, son. See, there's a way back, but it takes effort on our part. It takes us willing to start that journey. It takes us willing to step away. It takes us willing to obey the gospel if we haven't done that. It takes us turning as a Christian away from that foreign country and starting our walk back. Sometimes it's not an easy road, but there is a way back. It's just how hard do you want to fight for it? How hard do I want to fight for it? Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. Thou that makest thy... Wrong one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. With God, uh, whom God hath set free to be, who has set forth to be a perpetuation through faith in blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. If we'll submit ourselves, He's, he's faithful and just to forgive us. He will justify us. I don't know about you, but I've got a lot of things in my life and things that have been in my life that need to be justified. I've got to have a lot of grace because I'm human. I wished I didn't need grace, but I do. But that's the glory to me that, that God sent his son for me, that he's waiting for me, that he's willing to love me, and that he does love me, and that all he wants is for me to follow him. We can be justified through Christ. Not sinless, not that we won't ever have sin again, but those sins are forgiven because we're walking with Christ. Psalms chapter 32, verses 1 through 5. I'm not going to read it, but David talks about the weight of sin in our lives. He says, As I kept my sin, he said, Your hand was heavy upon me. My bones waxed old, he said. The drought or the, the moisture of his body was turned into drought. You ever been in sin like that or had any kind of problem that was like that? You get separated from God, you can feel the heavy hand of God when your conscience returns if you hadn't seared it too much. Your bones will hurt. Your mouth will be dry. And there's only one cure, David said, and that said, he said, I confessed my sins, and I was forgiven. That weight was lifted. See, God knew what he was talking about when he said, if you'll just confess, my yoke is easy. Come to me, my burden is light. You don't believe me, try it. You got something heavy in your life, you don't believe me, you try it. You confess it to your brother. Confess it to God and say, I want help. There will be help. And you'll feel it.
God's word doesn't lie to us. And ultimately, God wants people that love him and want to serve him. Revelations 3 and verse 16, he said, I would that you would rather be cold or hot, but because you're lukewarm, I'll spew thee out of my mouth. God doesn't want us to be partly Christian. He wants us to be on fire, or he wants us to be ice cold. He really doesn't want the middle of the road. He wants people on fire. He says it makes him sick when people can't make a decision if they want to be good or bad. And you know, if I do a lot of self-reflection, I see myself a lot of times in that position, being lukewarm. It's a dangerous position to be in. But again, if we'll humble, humble ourselves, there's a way back. I don't know where your heart's at this morning. I don't know if you've obeyed the gospel. The gospel is, is just simply this. It's the good news. You've got to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You must repent. You must confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and you must be baptized for the remissions of sin and arise to walk in newness of life. It's just that simple, people. And then from there, just walk that life, what the Bible has to say. If you haven't done that, don't put it off. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. I've said it, as I say nearly every time, I'm not guaranteed to get to the bottom of those steps with my life. Don't put it off. Maybe you've strayed away. We're here to help. We're not here to judge. Because we've all been there if we'll be truthful with ourselves. Or if something, if the cares of life is just too much, we're here for that too. If there's one of either class, we'll ask you to come as we stand and sing.